Doug South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. We're mass communicating. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. This is the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DougSouth.com. I give it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. And now, here your host, Rocky LaFleur. Everybody on? Good. Great. Grand. Wonderful. No yelling on the butt. Josh Webb. Sorry I had a fight in the middle of your butt. I'm party. And Jake LaTondres. I am bad news. Also starring Rob Crew. I bet this guy's into the woods a hundred bucks. And Bradley Ramsey. Bill Martin inside. Showtime. All right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Showtime, everybody. Showtime. Welcome to the End of the Line podcast. I'm Rocky LaFleur in the Ducks House Studios in Oxford, Mississippi, with the air conditioner running full blast. It is hot outside. It is not a new episode today. There are no guests. The only one here recording is me. But today, we are looking back at some of my favorite moments throughout the podcast. Um, you know, those moments that make you step back and say, wow, man, that was that was pretty wise. You know, this first moment that we're going to look at today is with one of my good friends, uh, Mr. Will Primos. Will and I have been friends for a while but that second episode that he was in uh this past fall man you could, i could sit here and put that whole episode in this as a favorite moment there's a lot of wisdom everyday life wisdom that we'll put out there but here's about 15 minutes out of that episode that i thought was pretty important how are you, Rocky? 41. Mm-hmm. I'm 66, so I come from a little bit different generation. So I was born in 52. Um, you know, so it's just uh, it's amazing. You know, I, I used to try to ha- have a talk about the word sacrifice because life is life is is full of choices. No matter no matter what you're you've got a choice to make every day when you get out of bed you know you make a choice before you go to bed what am i going to try to do tomorrow what am i going to try to accomplish what am i going to try to get done what have i got on my plate you know what does that involve and as you go through different stages of life you know that changes drastically and as you're trying to grow up get a high school education Possibly go to college, get a college education, get a master's, you know, get through med, whatever you're doing in life. All that requires different disciplines and and different strategies to get through those moments. And you have different priorities as you're building that. You you're building your you you start if you start thinking about it. You 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 better start thinking about retirement. And the earlier you start thinking about it, because it's going to come. And it's going to come faster than you think. And when we set up Social Security, this country has set it up at 62. That's pretty young at 62, but some people choose to retire. But getting to 65, you've got to sign up for Medicare, whether you want to or not. It's law. And um, you got to register. you got to sign up. And that was a, a real awakening moment for me. I'm going, you got to be kidding. i got to sign up for Medicare. And to go through that, but you life changes, and and I guess the secret for me is I try to learn. And I've always liked older people a lot. I've always hung around older people. And as a kid, I chose older people more than I did kids my own age to be friends with. And if you find get lucky and find the right ones, they will mentor you and help you and teach you and share with you. Because life's experience is the greatest teacher of all. And my my Sunday school leader, Sunday school teacher, is a guy named Chuck Stewart. And um, he's younger than me. He's got a son, went to Afghanistan. He got blown up, put back together. And his son is um, disabled. And 
but he, he functions great. He does good. Um, he's had, I don't know how many operations, 50 operations, whatever. And he started when, when he had the time and got kind of where he could function again, he started uh, a place called Downrange where young people come and get to experience life. But the, the biggest thing you got working against you is if you don't have loving, good, caring parents and people go through divorces, some children are born without parents, they, they, they don't have a, a set of parents, but a father figure and a, and a mother to nurture you and raise you that you love and you trust. And some parents are so guilty, in my opinion, and I'm not trying to judge them, I'm making an observation, um, of not disciplining their children. And you don't discipline children and they don't learn what sacrifice is and what no means and what holding up their end of the bargain and they allow them to act out and stuff. They take that on in the rest of their lives and they don't become as good of contributing members of society. And going back to my Sunday school teacher where I was going with that, he made he said a quote one day in Sunday school that his son taught him. And my words were always, you know, you sacrifice, you get what, what you what whatever, you know, when you sacrifice for something tomorrow, you, you get what, what that was worth. But this guy's name is C.J. Stewart. And C.J. put this, had this quote, and his daddy quoted it. And I went, oh, my gosh, when Sunday school was over, I walked up here and I said, I got to write down exact words. That is the best quote for life that I have found to this date of my life. And that quote is, is that discipline is simply turning down what I want now so later I can have what I want most. Whether, wow. it be, whether it be a child that you want to grow up to be a contributing member of society and to be successful and happy, if that's what you really want, you're going to have to have the discipline as a parent to to discipline that child correctly as they're young. And there's different children with different challenges. Some are, have hierarchies. Some of them have, you know, possibly Down syndrome. There's all kind of issues. But love crosses all those barriers. And I, I'll say it again. Discipline is simply turning down what I want now so later I can have what I want most. And that was C.J. Stewart. And, um I, I can't tell you how strong that is. And so when I'm thinking, man, I sure would like to have that extra piece of pie. Man, I sure would like to, you know, you, 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 if I want to be in shape and I want to enjoy the elk season that's coming up, which I do, and I leave September the 10th, and I'm going to be hunting, I'm going to be calling for my friend Brad Ferris in Colorado, northern, uh, southern Colorado. And I'm going to be calling. I'm going to be in, uh, hunting in New Mexico and calling for whoever down there. We'll have a whole camp of people down there. And if I want to be in shape and I want to keep up, because I'm 66 and some of these guys are in their 20s, if I want to keep up and I want to enjoy the moment and I want to be able to get to that next top ridge top to see that sunrise or sunset, then I'm going to have to be disciplined. I'm going to have to leave this. Lowland, this 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 sea level country I live in, with a high humidity, and I'm going to have to be in shape. So you're never going to be able to get enough oxygen because up there it's just thinner. And um, so, if I, but if my lungs and heart are strong, I'm going to recover quicker and I'm going to do fine. So I've got to give up something to get that. So discipline is simply turning down what I want most, what I want now, so later I can have what I want most. And the same thing goes, and I will say this, and you'll hear me talk about faith and religion a little bit, and I'm a, I, I love the Lord. I'm scared to death of him. And I want to do what he wants me to do, and I want to be a contributing factor to his kingdom every day of my life. And if what I want is salvation, then I'm going to have to discipline myself to learn all I can, to learn his word, to practice his word. And so in my morning, one of my, one of my prayers is, Lord, give me, don't give me riches, don't give me wealth, don't make this business deal I'm going to do successful. 
give me discernment. Let me discern as I move down the road what's right and what's not right, what's truthful, what's not, and what's good. As you go through life and as you go from a child to junior high school to high school to college, you are going to have all the opportunities in the world, especially when you're in business, to compromise your true character and to compromise what you really know is right. As an example, I had somebody send me a bill one time. I didn't have any money. I was struggling. I was borrowing money from the bank. I didn't know how I was going to make payroll. I didn't have but about 20 employees at the time. I didn't know. But they sent me an invoice for the much stuff that I had them do and the uh, contractor. And I, I saw it was a part of that invoice that didn't include. They, they had missed one of the one of the, the, the things that they had done for me. And it's a couple thousand dollars. I remember sitting there and thinking, man, I could shut that. That that would that would help me get through the month if I just didn't pay them that two thousand dollars. I'm just, I'm just not going to say anything. And I remember because of my upbringing, upbringing because of of my daily prayer, I was able to be hit between the eyes right then. Don't you dare compromise what you know is right. And I called them, and they sent me the proper bill, and we got it paid. And Lord have mercy, one of my big dealers paid me early, and I had enough money to make payroll. So, I mean, God's in charge. I mean, it's going to work out. But you've got to build that into your life. You can't just one day decide, I'm going to try to do good. You've got to learn it. Mm -hmm. It's a learned so anyway, I didn't mean to it's full time. It's not part time. It's full time. It's every day. And when full you deal time, with people, every moment. Yeah, yeah. When you deal with people mm-hmm. that don't treat you right, the, somebody says, "How do you know if you can trust somebody?" I said, "Trust them." To do what? I said, "Trust them." You trust them, and you real quickly will find out if you can trust them. Exactly. Anyway. I've heard you say that exactly. a, a lot of times. And, and, you know, you can't go thinking, through life looking over your shoulder, or you'll never, you'll never build a relationship with anyone because you're paranoid about everyone. You have to <laughs> eliminate through the process I've of met, elimination. I've met people like that to get to the good I've, people, right? Yeah, that's right. I've met people like that. Sure you, I, I, I was thinking about this because you and I have known each other well since, I guess, probably since '07. Um, so the first year you were in Belzona, I did a little filming with y'all when it came to the incoming DVDs. And mm-hmm. yeah. you, you know, you, you were talking about befriend people that are older to you. Ask them questions. Let them let them give you wisdom and knowledge. Now I was thinking about this, and I know this may be crazy to throw into this podcast, but there's a couple of things that you probably don't even you're not even aware that you sat me down and taught me a couple of things. And I want, I want to tell you this. When back then when you were at the farm? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Just just throughout our friendship up till today. Okay. And and, uh, and one of them, I want, to, I want to see if you remember these because they may help somebody that's listening to this. We were in a business meeting, you and I together. Oh, I guess it was probably, what, 2010 or 11, somewhere there. No, I, was a, I was a mistake thinking about I was going in business with you. <laughs> Well, I gave, I got up and gave a presentation. It, it, I guess it was in front of you and Jimmy, um, Brad oh, was I there. Oh, I Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to think of, of who else. The the it marketing had to, had, had to do with social media. Mike Powell, That's right. probably. Mike Powell. Mike Powell exactly was the name. Yeah. And after the meeting was was over with, you had asked me a question, and I responded with you. And I don't know why this popped in, into my head, but I. I said, well, in, during the meeting, I'm giving that presentation. You asked me a question. I said, well, just to be honest with you, Will, this is blah, 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 the answer. And I'll never forget, after that meeting was over with, you pulled me back into the office and you said, listen, we've got to be good friends. I just want to tell you this. Don't ever say that in the front of a sentence. If you have to say that, that means that you probably lied to me sometime in the past. You remember telling mm. me that? 
I, I can imagine me doing it. I don't remember it, but I can imagine me doing it. Yeah, it's something, I, I, people, I, it's something people say. It's, it's kind of got in, built into the language for some people. But you, you're, you're kind of saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I really think rather than trying to sugarcoat it. I, I don't need that. I don't need anybody telling me what I want to hear. I need somebody telling me what I need to hear. And mm-hmm. here's a perfect example. I got a friend, uh, and we've recently gotten to be fairly close and, and be able to talk uh, in, in ways that you couldn't talk to somebody that you really cared about, wanted to, wanted to help. And he, he wanted to make a presentation to me and a friend, uh, ask for some help in, in something that he's got going on in business. And so he ended up, he was sour over some people he had done some business with, and he, he, he talked about it. But then he, as he went on and on, he, he said it two more times in a little bit different way and began to get a negative look on his face. He quit smiling. He quit looking at us. He was venting, but yet he was, he was adding a, a, a negative flavor and element into, the, into, our, into our time together. And he's really meeting this guy that I brought in that could help him uh, for the first time in a in a intimate in a strong way, and so you know that went on. So we got through with our meeting, and I called him a couple of days later, and I said, "I I, I want to share with you something because you're too good, you got too much going for you, and I want to tell you how it came across." Now. Some people would say, you're risking a friendship. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm putting my cards on the table to strengthen a friendship and make a – because if he can't receive – honestly, I may be wrong, but he, if he can't di- dissect, if he can't discern, if he can't examine what I got to say and decide if there's any truth to it or not, and he just wants to discount it very quickly and hold it against me for speaking up, then he's not really the friend – that I I think he could be and is, uh, and and, and we we'll, we'll we'll separate a little bit. But I told him what I thought, which was not flattering. And, and I said I may be wrong, but I just I, I think you just need to look back and think about what you said and and think about how you were feeling. And he said, "Man, I really appreciate you being willing to say that to me." And he called me back the next day and he says, "Man, I've thought about that and I've gone over that meeting and he says I cannot thank you enough." for taking the time and being willing to say those things to me. Nobody would do that. That's not what I wanted to hear, but it's what I needed to hear. And I, I, he said, I, for one, can't stand negative stuff. And there I was being a part of that. And so my point in saying that is, is that you've got to be able in life to help people go from one step to the next and always climb it up and benefit them. And they'll be, they'll be drawn to you and you'll be closer and better for it. And, you, you know, I believe what goes around comes around. I got into a, a situation and needed some help. I didn't have any clue where to go. And I'm just trying to handle it myself, involve some construction issues. And, when he called me back and was t- thanking me and we closing the conversation off, and he says, so what you got going on? I said, man, I got da 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 And he just, he just, he, he could have just said, oh, I'm so sorry. I hope you do. hope you get yeah, help. Okay. He could have said that. Instead, he said, Will, I think you should call this guy. He is one of the finest, most honest, best, and he is in that field big time. That happened last Friday. I made that phone call. That man was standing next to me in two hours later, and he has changed so much for me. And all because I, I wanted, I felt I wanted to do what I felt like I should do. I didn't want to run from it. I wanted, and so that in life, you're going to have those chances. And you, you, you got to tell people with what you, and you've got to have the right heart and the right frame of mind. You got to be doing it from the right angle. It's not to tear anybody down. It's to build them up. 
Those, mm-hmm. those, are, those are things that can help you through life so much. Those kind of attitudes and those kind of um, decisions that you've got to make. You've got life is a life is a world of decisions, uh, and setting setting up your standard, knowing where you want to go, and then making decisions involved in that direction. Always knowing for me, keeping. Christ's lessons and his journey in, in the foremost of my mind. I don't always achieve it. I'm not always perfect. Nobody, and I'm saying right now, nobody has perfect. And I don't care what they are, the greatest preacher in the world, Billy Graham or whoever it is, every one of us have the same issues in life. And none of us, just because we choose a certain profession or we've achieved so, so many people look at other people in life and go, oh, man, you've just done so good. Everybody judges you by where you are in the financial and successful world. You know, having a great family and, and being able to hold your head high and, and, and walk in the way the Lord wants you to, that's, that's real success. That's real success. Now, this next part, I know that you'll remember it, but Spencer Halford came on Mondays with Rob, and it wasn't your regulars, regular Mondays with Rob. I know everybody knows that show, you know, because they're tuning in to get a good laugh, but this Mondays with Rob was real serious. It was when the proposal came up last year when they were going to limit, and they come to find out they are limiting the number of days that out-of-state people can access WMAs in Arkansas, but this is before we knew that. Public land in Arkansas means a lot to these two guys. But Spencer went into about a three or four minute speech that left me speechless after he said it. Man, I I just sat back and went, wow. We were talking about, you know, one of the reasons they want to limit uh, out-of-staters coming to Arkansas was... They were saying that it was overcrowded, you know, people were fighting over there. So I asked Pincher about that. I asked him his thoughts on it. It was a great moment in the podcast. You asked me, are more interactions positive than negative? And I would say 10 years ago, yes, they were almost all positive. Hey, how you doing? You know, y'all get them? Yeah, you know, good, that kind of talk. The last five years, they have grown increasingly negative. And it, again, this knows no state line. It's not resident serve jerks or non-residents or idiots. It's it's it, human interactions in the Duckwoods are negative right now. There's a general sentiment that there's problems, and to you know to to make the world a better place, we got to all be the tough guy and whatever you know, run somebody off our spot. There's 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 like we're not we're just generally not being nice to each other, and we're We were talking about this last night over dinner, some of us were, and the problem rears its head both for non-residents and for residents. We all start from a place of what we're entitled to. And if you're a non-resident and you pay $350 and you drive 12 hours and you, you know, wake up at 1 a.m. and you, you know, you go to all the effort, you feel like you've earned the right to be where you are, to hunt where you are. And so as soon as somebody tells you that you can't, it, it all everything in you wells up. You know, the American in you wells up and says, oh, this is a free country, man. I can do whatever I want. And, it, and likewise, I get it from a resident standpoint. You live there. You pay taxes all year. You pay real estate taxes. You, you know, I mean, heaven, God forbid you got to pay damn income tax over there. And, and you feel like you own the place, you know. And so it's, it's none of us approach. Right now, what I observe amongst all the duck hunters that access the WMAs in, in Arkansas is almost nobody approaches the wildlife management areas like a guest. We all approach it like we've earned the right to be there, and by God, get out of my way, or I'm going to run you over. And all of us deserve blame for that because it's none, none of us own that ground. It's the states, you know, and, and it's been bought with, you know, conglomeration of funds, and ultimately, we're all a guest there. It's not our property. 
we, we all chipped in. And some of us chipped in more than others, but that's not relevant. We're all a guest, and we should treat it that way, and we're not. You know, it's the old Boy Scout adage, leave no trace, you know, and it's, and it's the whole idea that it teaches the, the boys in Boy Scouts that this is not yours, something that you've got the privilege to enjoy and to be part of, but leave it better than you found it, and don't leave trace of you being there. Well, we don't approach duck hunting that way. We we go there, and we are all want to be Billy Badass and make our mark and, and leave a trace of who we are and, you know, get out of my way because I've earned the right. I live in the state of Arkansas, or I have grown up hunting here, or I my granddaddy was conceived on that log, or my mom cut that hole out. Whatever, I mean, whatever it is, we all right now approach this whole game from a standpoint of what we're entitled to. And we got to all back up and, and change that because, whoa, uh, uh, you know what I'm saying? Otherwise, we're never going to proactively manage the resource and manage the ducks because we're all worried about what what is best for me. And and in every post that's on Ducks House right now and on all the other pages, that's what that's the that's the bottom line. Everybody's in it for what's best for me right now. I get questions all the time about what my favorite episode is. I can't name it. But one of my most favorite quotable lines ever in an episode is when Jim Ronquist talked about a cut down call. He talked about why it sounds different to a duck and he explains it to it in everyday common sense terms that anybody can understand and why a cut down is better back back in the in my day but really going way back before me um the people that were really successful in some of the large tracts of public woods and um, Arkansas, West Tennessee, Missouri, um, North Louisiana. Um, they picked up on the idea of modifying an old duck call. I think part of it was because of that's what was available. It was easy and for them to come by. They were affordable. But sometimes they think, well, hey, let's tune on it. Let's do this, do that to make it blow better. And they wound up, they found they could get a little more volume. They could get... Uh, a little different rattle, uh, and, and uh, the ducks responded to them. And as you move on into the more recent history through the 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 90s when ducks really started coming back after 95, when we started seeing the more liberal duck seasons in the in the late 90s and the early 2000s, there was another big push of guys that had learned from the Lester Caps of the world and the Monroe Williams of the world and um, several people up and down the flyway, especially Arkansas and Louisiana, that they develop different styles of modifying or tuning or what you hear nowadays on the on the Facebook deal. I had so-and-so cut my call. And I can remember in 98, 99, you'd go to the bottoms and you hear somebody blowing and the, you, you could probably count on both hands the guides that were blowing oats, and they were very successful day in, day out. And I became part of one of those guys. But what separates it is the volume and the bass, along with a lot of guys think they're extremely strong on top because they've got so much volume and bass. But I think what really makes them count is what you can do with them on the finesse side. So I took those same ideas and attributes as we developed the Mondo and the Mondo Light, and now we're going to have the Mondo LA. I took those same attributes and tried to put them into the Mondo, and I, I think that's what separates it. Uh, compared to, say, an RNT Original or an RNT Daisy Cutter, which are great, great, great calls, and there are some days that's really what you should blow but they're just different. It's a, it's a shorter board, it's a longer read, it's a thicker read, and the frequencies are different. And ducks react to frequencies. It's kind of like why um, super magnum decoys are successful. They don't really look like a duck because they're so much bigger, but ducks respond to them. It's super stimulized, what the technical name for it is, super stimulation. So I think the sound, when you 
become a little bit, even though it's duck-like, you put a bigger presence to it. Um, you kind of uh, magnify it, ain't the right word, but you make it a bigger sound. Ducks respond to that better. They hold it better. And, and some of that will go back to, I read a report one time done with songbirds at Cornell University. Um, they took, they had two recordings. They played the, the, they had the actual songbirds. Then they had a recording that they could play at a normal level and dub and half it and half it again. And they paid attention to the response from the real birds. And as the volume level got turned up, the birds responded quicker to the higher volume. Now, you can't apply that directly to duck hunting, but in breaking high ducks, um, if you're in the right location, that extra volume and that extra bass that carries, I think ducks respond to it. And I say I say bass, um, when Jake was talking about my old house, I lived not far off of, about a half a mile off a of major highway. People were going to casino in Helena, or retailing over there. And I'd hear them going down, down the road, and we was about a half mile off there. And you could hear, when they turned the radio up, you'd hear the bass drumming, playing the rap music and stuff. You'd hear that bass hitting. You wouldn't hear anything else, but you'd hear that bass. And I think you'd spin around a half mile south of my house with the rice fields along over Cypress Creek. There'd be a few ducks on it all the time. And you could hear them ducks, even with the wind blowing against them, you could hear them ducks hit licks and feed call and whatnot, but you'd hear the bass. And I think the, the bass of the Mondo style calls, and there's other people make them and they're very good, but I think that bass is what makes them work. And that was a really long answer to a... No, it's a, it's a great answer. Sure. Uh, it's but a the fascinating... Bass what I think. You know, when people meet me, or I meet somebody for the first time that, that listens to the podcast, one of their first questions to me is, hey, what, what, what's, what's your favorite episode? You know, as you look back on them all as a whole, what, what was your favorite episode? I can't name a particular favorite episode. I, I could put about 10 of them together and say, man, these are good. But one of those that is good was the Hunt Boss with Brooks Tinsley. If you take a second and ingest a second, about 10 or 15 minutes that I cut from that episode to put in this episode, but just listen to that 10 or 15 minutes that I cut, and you go back and listen to the whole thing, man, there's so much knowledge and wisdom about duck hunting you know somebody always asks me why don't y'all do tips a video or tips podcast or tips this let me tell you something what brooks tinsley gave you that day was better than anything that can be written in a magazine told in a video given to you by ducks unlimited whatever it does not matter the hunt boss episode go find it Go listen to it. But here's about 10 or 15 minutes from that episode that I thought was really, really good. Yep. So this is, you know, it, 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 uh, you know, a progression as the hunt goes. You know, if you start a hunt and, you know, you say you have a couple groups that don't do right. They don't come in for whatever reason. Uh, the first thing I'm going to do is go to decoys. And so I'm going to go out to decoys Think about the wind, maybe reposition. And the second thing I'm going to do is when I'm out there, I'm going to look at where everybody's at and look at our hide. Mm. Uh, so, you know, once I've got the decoys like I want them, once I know for sure everybody's hid, uh, the wind's right, et cetera, et cetera, then the last key to that puzzle is going to be the calling, uh, whether that's calling harder, calling softer, not calling at all. Uh, you know, so, so once I've got the decoys right, I got the people right, uh, then it's all my calling sequence. Uh, and, you know, uh, we talked earlier, you know, sometimes ducks just don't come in. You know, you'll have a group, if, if you're sitting scouting watching a hole from, you know, a half mile away in binoculars, you'll see a group of 20 mallards fly over a 
you know, 500 live ducks on the water and circle three times and leave. And you're like, well, yep. you know, they just don't always come in. Uh, so, but, <laughs> that, that, but that, you know, when you said that earlier, we were talking that really, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had, you know, been out scouting with people and this, and, you know, why are these ducks acting so spooky? I'm like, they're just being ducks. You know, yeah. let's go out and watch them and watch, you know, and late in the season, especially ducks are just mm-hmm. skittish, even of other ducks. And you're not going yeah. to get them all. Your job is to get the majority of them. And, you know, the craziest thing I've ever shown someone who didn't realize that was I want you to watch and what we call flaring when we're in the hole. Mm-hmm. Ducks will flare off of other ducks. So you don't Correct. always yeah. know that it's you. You know, you eliminate excuses and then you try to add, you yeah. know, to your to, to your plus side. Yeah, so if you got the decoys, you feel like they're good, the people are good, everybody's hitting, so then it's your calling. So, you know, my go-to, I'm working a group of ducks. As soon as I feel like they're committed to the hole, most of the time I will shut up. Now, if they don't finish uh, and they don't flare, you know, if they blow up and flare, you know, something wasn't right. Uh, but, you know, if they don't finish and they're going to make another pass, well, the next time I feel like they're going to come in, you know, I'm going to maybe try to feed call them to the water. Or maybe just do, you know, slow quacks. So those are the, the calling adjustments you can make. And you said something else earlier, Bradley, about that caller and them keying in on it. There will be times where I'll be like, they'll be keying on on my calling as they're finishing. And if they're not lined up right, they're going to key in and they won't finish because they're keying in on me maybe out of position. So I might tell somebody, mm-hmm. you know, 20 yards to my left, hey, you're going to have to finish these ducks. When they hit that last corner, only you feed, you know. And mm-hmm. so that's reading body language and knowing that, hey, they didn't necessarily flare because it was messed up. The setup just wasn't quite right with where I was and where I was calling. I mean, and so to a new duck hunter, that's something they can't even comprehend. You know, if it's your first season, that, you're like, this is this shit's over yeah. my head. <laughs> this, that is some of the best freaking stuff. I hope that everybody that's listening to this, that's better than what you can read in a magazine right there. I hope every person that's listening to this podcast listening to what Brooks just said. Unbelievable stuff. Yeah, well, well, you know, you know uh, it's a, go ahead. Go ahead, Brad. Brooks. No, I was it's a lot. We're right on top of each other. It's like, so we got two hunt bosses, Rocky, and we're both just so fired up about this this art of finishing ducks and killing ducks that we just, we just can't can't contain ourselves. Uh, but go, go ahead. Go ahead, Bradley. It's just a weird one that popped into my head when you're talking about that, that last-minute shift of, of shift of the calling over to one side. And... We get very caught up these days in motion and water motion and things like that. And it's one that, that you know, I've, I've gone back. I'm a jerk string guy. I've been a jerk string guy forever. Mm-hmm. I'm a water kicker. You know, that's that. I'm a timber hunter. That's another one of those those things that, of late that I've noticed with a lot of, of, of newer hunters I'm with is they want to continue to keep that motion going when ducks are coming straight at them. And, and, and it's one oh. of those things where it's like, you know what? You don't need that. You know, you're yeah. drawing attention to you. When you're trying to yeah. make that motion happen, when birds are looking at you, those ripples are going to be there long at, you know, do that when they're going away or when they're on the corners. But when they're coming at yeah. you, you don't want to, st- you don't want the water muddied right at your feet. You don't want the ripples right at your feet. You know, it, and I can't prove that. I'm not going to say I'm, I, I'm reading the duck's mind, but the last thing I want to do is draw a duck's attention to where my hunters are. I want no my doubt. ducks looking at my decoys, not at my hunters. So, yeah, so if you're not the hunt boss in your group, so you've got you, group dynamics, you've got, you know, different roles. Well, there's always you've got your jerk string guy. You know, he's your guy oh, yeah. can't call. He can't call. But, <laughs> you know, he knows a little bit knows a little bit about what what's going on. He's got a huge and, you know, left I, 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 my, my big deal, my, my buddies joke with me, Cause I'll be, I'll get onto them hard about not kicking the water, and then on the same hand, you know, to echo what Bradley said, it's when they kick. 
You can't be them mm-hmm. kicking like crazy when they're coming in. You want to be kicking as like cadences ring out. You know, as as you got people calling hard. If somebody's you know feed calling, that's probably not a good time to be going crazy, pulling the jerk string, you know, kicking the water like crazy. So you're you're kicking when ducks can't see you, and you're pulling the jerk string when they can't see you. If they're coming in, quit kicking the damn water. Just get get your gun ready. That's the time to be still. Yep, no <laughs> doubt. So right, yeah, but I, think what, but, but, I, I, I will ham I will hammer my group about kicking the water. I think motion is, you know, probably the most underutilized thing in, in any any hunting duck hunting situation. Um, so yes, you gotta be gotta be making making motions. That you know one thing you know I'm calling trying to break these ducks. I look around, everybody's sitting there with their thumb up their ass, and I'm like, kick the damn water, you know. <laughs> You, you, you know, Brooks, I'll say this. You, you're probably the most cussed man or the cussed part of the hunting party <laughs> as the hunt goes on. But when you get back to the boat ramp and and you're unloading a pile of ducks, you're probably the most pat on the back also, right? This is, this, yeah. So, yeah, you know, it, it, I guess it's some praise too, but this is a funny story. My dad, he didn't he didn't really grow up duck hunting He's kind of duck hunted because he knows how much I like it. So he's always just along for the flow. <laughs> Last year it was cold, but we weren't killing any ducks. And uh, my buddy was like, Mr. Greg, what are you doing over here? He's like, I'm just trying to hide. So Brooks, <laughs> Brooks doesn't make me kick the water anymore. <laughs> I've been getting on to him about kicking the water. He's like, I'm taking a break. I'm coming over here and hiding. <laughs> Another thing that, that that people have said, is hunt bosses get creative when it comes to they they find ways not so much of breaking the law but around the law is that true yeah so all right so this is this is the best story i've got if you're listening to this podcast this is a good one to, to hang on to so matthew's break i've hunted it since before any regulations when you could sleep in the boat all night long and they went to a deal to where they were letting people put in at midnight and it got to where people were putting in at midnight and racing at midnight. And they were like, well, it's really only crazy that opening weekend, you know, other than that, it's, you know, not, not near as crazy, but opening weekend at midnight, there'd be 30 boats all blasting off at the same time. And it was dangerous. They needed to do something. Well, so their idea was to change the, the, the opening weekend they would let you put in at noon the day before uh, the day before opening that. day. Yeah. So at the time, I had like a twenty-three horse long tail, and surface drives were just coming out, you know. And so I didn't. I was broke. Didn't have enough money for a surface drive. And I'm like, golly, we're gonna get our butt kicked this hole. I know they're gonna be there. And so I'm reading through the regs, and. I was like, damn, it doesn't say anything about not being out on the water fishing. Like you could, it didn't say anything about you couldn't be out there fishing. And at the time, this was long before it's real grown up now. There's not much fishing, but it used to be a really good place to go fishing. So I had the idea that I was going to get out there at daylight that morning with no hunting stuff and just my fishing pole. And I was going to go back to this spot and just hold it. So, you know, I'm reading through the rig. There's nothing in there that says I can't be back there fishing. Nothing. And so I get out there at 6 o'clock that morning, got to witness just a bunch of ducks and mallards pounding this hole, undisturbed. It was really cool. One of the coolest mornings I've ever had, you know, being in the duck woods, not hunting, and just watching and listening. It was really neat. Well, you know, everybody gets there at, you know, 10, 11 o'clock, getting ready to put it at noon, and they figure out, well, there's a boat with this trailer, you know, trucking trailer with no boat, you know, and so everybody's up in arms at the boat ramp, and, you know, they send a search party out looking for me, uh, game no way. with a in, in a hunter's boat. I mean, everybody's just so beside me, they're like, oh, somebody's cheating, somebody's already out there, we need to go get them, this and that. So sure enough, at about 
I don't know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock, I hear a mud motor coming my way, and I'm like, damn, so I get my damn fishing pole out. That's all I've got. I don't have any duck hunting stuff with me. I get my fishing pole out, and it's like growing up in grass back where I'm at. Like, it's real, it's real open water. <laughs> but I'm like back in the grass. Not saying there wasn't any fish back there, but you would not go fishing back there. Well, so... <laughs> Is this game warden pulls up and this other guy's bone? I'm literally like, I had casted and pulled back a rattle trap just slapped full of weeds. <laughs> and he pulls up and he was like, Do you really expect me to believe that you're, you're back here fishing? And I was like, Look, man, I don't know what else you think I'm doing. I said, I got fishing pole, tackle box. I don't have any hunting stuff. I didn't have camo on. I was like, Man, I'm fishing. He was like, come on now, come clean. I know why you're back here. And I was like, man, I'm fishing, you know? And so he gets on the radio. There, there's another game where the boat ramp, and I hear him. He's, I said, I got him back here in the back. He said, well, bring him up here. He said, we got a problem. The guy was like, what's that? He said, he's back here fishing. He said, fishing? He said, yeah, he ain't got no duck hunting stuff with him. You know, hell, he's got a tackle box, fishing pole. Uh, what do you want me to do? And the guy was like, well, hell. He said, I guess just let that some bitch fish. That's what he's going to do. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, well, I guess there ain't nothing we can do. I hope y'all kill him in the morning. I said, thanks. And he took off. So that hole got named the fishing hole. Uh and if we've got enough time, the next best one about that place, uh, they changed they changed where you could put your boat in or the time you could put your boat in. So it, it evolved, you know, and then it went to 4 o'clock, and then it went to where you couldn't be past a certain sign until 4 o'clock. Uh, well, so from that sign of the boat ramp to about a quarter mile, uh, and people be sleeping there. You know, they get there the day before and park in line. They do that to this day. Well, you know, kind of what we did, uh, I came up with this grand plan. I was like, hell, we don't have to use the boat ramp. We've got these small boats with these small mud motors. I said, we'll just stop before the boat ramp and slide this boat off in the water. You know, there's not a law saying we got to use the boat ramp, you know. Well, so that's what we would do. We'd pull up at 4 o'clock and be the last person in line. And as soon as everybody moved forward, we'd pull up into the refuge, slide our boat off the trail, and just slide off in the water. Gone. And for the longest, this one for two years, <laughs> people would just be so mad getting into a spot. You cheated. There ain't no way you beat me here. And you know, like, hey, man, I, I, I did everything by the book and legal. And literally, they've changed both the rate. They changed both the regulations because of me. Now you've got a lot launch from the public boat ramp. And back in the fishing hole days, they changed the law the next year to where you couldn't be on the water until twelve o'clock noon. So, I have had some laws rewritten with my creativity. You know, having Martin known, and that's where this next clip comes from, is becoming Martin. Uh, Martin and I, on a lot of levels, think alike. A lot of core beliefs are the same. You know, it was always a pleasure getting together with Martin and recording those episodes. There was there was a lot of story um, coming from somebody that you saw on TV a lot um, with with Duck Commander, but also there was a lot of wisdom that came out of those podcasts. You know, one of the things Martin and I talked about one of those early episodes was judging success. I asked Martin, when he got to be 70 and he looked back on life, what what was going to determine his success? I want you to listen to that answer now. When you get to be 70, though, Martin, you're looking back on all this. How are you going to judge on your own life if you were successful or not? You know, I'll... It's funny you ask this because it was probably a year ago or maybe a little longer that we um, were doing a Devo like um, you know I was talking about that we do here, but we were doing it outside of work at that time. And um, 
I was watching Sports Center or something, and one of them loud mouth ones, I don't remember who it was, but anyway, one of them got on there and called called somebody a complete failure. And I'm like, huh, what? I mean, why? Wh- who are you to cast judgment that that person is a complete failure based off of wins and losses and, and this, that, the other? So it got me to digging in... Uh, into the Bible, and what it led me to, and and something that I've tried to keep um, in my mind is, if you look through the Bible, and I don't have my little notebook with me, but so I'll paraphrase some of this. But um, if you look in the Bible, the only time that that you see that anybody failed. And that, you know, it it seemed to be some disappointment is when they just absolutely gave up and quit trying. My deal on success is that's the only way you can actually fail is to just say, forget it, I'm done. And go live your life mired and because somebody slammed a door in your face and, you know, that hurt your feelings or whatever. So to me, to be successful is the resiliency to get back up and get back in the fight and you know whatever that fight may be it could be a fight for your family a fight for your marriage a fight for your job a fight for you know you name it but you get up and you stay in that fight and you you know that you and while you're in that fight that you do everything that you can to keep those closest to you to know that they're the um the most important things in your life of this earth um you know, what What does it mean, you know, the old saying of, you know, what good does it do to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Um, so how do you do that? How do you gain the whole world, keeping your soul and keeping, you know, leading others to heaven? And and ultimately, my deal is for success is if I have led one other person to heaven with me or because of me or because of something that I did, then... Everything else, who cares about money? You know, the old cliche, you can't take it with you. You can't. It's going to be left here for whatever. Um, and, and and in Matthew, it says somewhere, you know, um, about my riches aren't stored on this earth, but they're stored in heaven. And, and I think that's, the to me, the most successful is that I keep storing up those riches in heaven, that I keep doing the things that are going to get me to be with my grandparents again one day, to be with my parents once they pass on one day, to, you know, to spend eternity with with the people that I love and with like-minded people. And um, and I know for some people listening to this, you may not believe, and that's fine. And you may think, there go them Bible thumpers again. But, you know, that's that's your opinion, and um, I'm not going to blast you for it. And, and I just ask that you don't do the same to me. And um, But ultimately, that, the success to me is where do you end up for eternity? Forget everything else, but where where is your mind, body, and spirit for eternity? Um, and and if I can do that and make it there and bring other people with me, then then I have been a hundred percent successful in what I feel like I was put on this earth to do. Why? Why? I'm gonna give you mine in just a minute. I want to ask you this question first. Where mm-hmm. where is our world come that if we're writing on the chalkboard, let's go back to high school days, elementary days, whatever you want to go back to, we're writing the word success on the chalkboard. Where did we turn? Because when I was young, I don't remember it being like this. Maybe I was just kind of country boy, naive to everything going on in the world. But if you wrote success on the board today, the equal to that would be money. That's yeah, what be everybody... Wealth. Yeah, everything is judged based on that. Where did, I, I'm trying to go back through this. And I, like I said, maybe I'm naive, but I think in the past 20 years, it, that has really become the magnified point. Because I can remember my mom and dad's days, and maybe, like I said, maybe it was in my microscopic world that I lived in, that I can remember my mom and daddy saying that their success was looking at how I turned out later on in life. That was their success. What, you know, yeah. what I was carrying on for them in how they raised me. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, back in those days and even, 
I think success for them was the legacy that they left behind. Um, and and for us, I mean, you know, especially in the hunting world, I think that's still what we strive for is, is what do you leave behind? What kind of trail do you leave behind you? And that trail being your children, your, you know, whatever. So, um, but I think, you know, to your you think- point, there's always been wealthy people in the world. I just think we're at a point now where and it's not everybody can see it, you know. Listen, some of the some of the most successful people in the Bible, in God's eyes, were wealthy. Don't get me wrong, Solomon. Oh, yeah. Good grief! I mean, there were tons of people that had lots of money. There's nothing. I'm by any means. Everybody's listening. I'm not making wealth out to be an evil thing and sound like some kind of uh, libertard here. I'm not. <laughs> but you, let me ask you this: Do you think that success equals wealth? Um came about because of the change of the morals of America? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I think it's, um, I think it came from a shift of the focus in America. Morals would probably fall right in line with that. But where America used to be family-centered and family-oriented, you saw the shift to business-oriented. You know, you saw the shift to um, and I think, you know, my generation, um, you know, early to mid-80s was really when you saw it a lot where both parents were starting to have to work to keep up with the change of the change of times and to provide for their families. And, um, you know, we're back in a little bit prior to that, you know, the, it was a stay-at-home mom who took care of the kids and, you know, made sure that, you know, they did their Bible, they did all this, and... um so I think when you saw the shift go from family first to, you know, whatever you want to call it, work first, business first, whatever, um, then you started seeing the shift in what does success mean? Does Because now you're no longer worried about your legacy. You're worried about what's in your bank account to turn around and provide for those kids or provide for whoever or provide for yourself or whatever. So, um and with that, when you do that, when you take the focus off of that, then, I mean, I think your morals do change. You know, there becomes moral ambiguity and um, and all sorts of things that fall in line with that. And ultimately, I think you get to where we are today. I also, with that being said, think that's one of the reasons that the show was so wildly successful because we showed America that there still are people out there that are family first. Um, so... And and for the people that long for that and missed that and, you know, thought that they may have been on an island that they were like that, they were showed that that, that still happens and that it's okay. All right, well, I'll end it with this, Martin. I'll say this, and I said this at my grandmother's funeral. The two ways that my grandmother determines success, I think it is a absolute 100% ultimate way to live. Number one, to see those life change through Christ by being saved, that is the ultimate legacy to leave behind. But the way that you judge success, and she's told me this many, many times as I laid on her couch and she sat telling me stories, she told me, the one day that you'll be judged by your success is how many people show up at your funeral. Yeah. And that speaks volumes to, you know, we spend so much time getting and getting and doing and doing for ourselves that at the end of the day, it's all about relationships with people. You know, Amen. man. People loving on each other, man. That's awesome. Let me just tell you this. For a 92-year-old woman, when she passed, to have three or 400 people show up at her funeral, that speaks volumes. Because most people, are, you, you take their first-level friends, they've already passed. So that that tells you right there what kind of legacy you're leaving behind as a 92-year-old person to have that many people show up at your funeral, how many people's lives you've touched. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty stinking awesome. If you live by that principle, if you live by, all right, you're you're in a competition to see how many people you can get at your funeral, that's a unbelievable principle to live by. Guys, I appreciate it again, you joining another Greatest of 
podcast episodes. I've really enjoyed it. I, I really like looking back on these episodes because in the heat of the summer, when there's not a lot going on and the just the dedicated podcast listeners are listening, they look back and listen to these moments and smile. And because they were some great moments. And to me these were some of the some of the best ones. There's a ton out there. Don't get me wrong. I mean there's so much that you can find in Ramsey Russell's uh, Get Life Short Get Ducks episodes or Pat Pitts of Waterfowlers. I mean any of them any of them and and take something away from them. these are just a few that popped up in my mind and I wanted to go back and download and put them together in a greatest of end of the line podcast moments thank you again for being here we want to thank all of you that listen to this edition of the end of the line podcast power.com